I discovered that as I thought of retiring, one of the things that I had to deal with was to be able to save enough money, and I had to figure out how to invest to get the best returns. So today, that's the title of this, and this is not sort of a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University kind of thing. So if you're disappointed, I'm sorry. Um, but what we're going to do instead is talk about probably what I think is the most unusual parable that Jesus ever told. And I think it's the only parable that has a joke in it. And when you read it the first time, you're going to be confused because it doesn't really seem to make sense. But in order to deal with the parable this morning, and we're going to be looking at Luke 16, I want to just back up one chapter and look at Luke 15. Pastor Dave said, you're in the Gospel of John. And so I said, well, I'll take the Gospel of Luke and we'll work from there. If you go to Luke 15, Luke 15 has three stories in it, and the theme is being lost. The first story Jesus tells is about lost sheep. The, the shepherd goes out. When he comes back, he counts all the sheep, and there are 99 of them, and one is missing. And he leaves the one behind, and he, goes, he leaves the 99 behind, and he goes and finds that one lost sheep. The second story is about a woman who lost a coin. And she needed the money. And she tore her whole house apart. Of any story in the Bible, this is the one I relate to. I'm always looking for lost things. I put a pen down. I put something down. One time I lost a whole envelope full of checks. And I spend all my time looking for it. My wife recently told me I should be good at finding lost things because I've had so much practice doing it. But the point is that Jesus is saying God, God is concerned about the lost and he kind of, he'll tear the place up in order to find the lost. And then the most familiar story in Luke 15 is the story of the lost son. We know it as the prodigal son. The son who couldn't wait for dad to die, so he asked for his inheritance. He blows the inheritance and then comes home and asks for the father's forgiveness and the father embraces him. Incidentally, I one time did a funeral in which there was not a single Christian in the room. And I simply told that story. And afterwards, people came up going, that was amazing. Where did you get that? Always use good material. Yeah. So God is concerned about lost people. Now, Luke did not put the chapter breaks in. He didn't finish chapter 15 and go, okay, now let's go to chapter 16. What he did was he continued with another parable as Jesus told it. So what I'd like you to do is turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. If you're using the Bibles in the seats and want to follow along, it's page 1040. And this is often called the parable of the dishonest manager. Luke chapter 16, he, that is Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he called him and said to him, 
what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may, be re they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when I read a story like that, sometimes we kind of go through quickly and kind of miss what is all going on. So in this story, as we're going through this, we, we have an owner of a company who just discovered that one of his employees was embezzling funds. This week, as I was reading the newspaper in Hayward, I came across a story that um, in Santa Clara County right now, they have discovered that a woman who was responsible for the accounts of a, a group of restaurants was also embezzling money. I guess they got suspicious when she pulled up with a $65,000 Porsche and they discovered that she was regularly making $15,000 bonus checks out to herself, and she took about $200,000 of the company's business, of their money. Now, we understand what's happening in this story now. The man is embezzling, and when the owner finds out, he decides to fire him, rightfully so. But as soon as this manager is fired, suddenly he sits down and he has to do sort of a self-assessment. He kind of decides for the past 20 years, I've been sitting behind a desk, so I'm really not in no condition to do manual labor. So that's sort of out. He also said, well, I could go to begging. And in that society, actually begging was an honorable profession, but you had to be physically disabled to do it. People saw that you could not work, and if he suddenly started begging, it would be a shameful thing. 
So out of his self-assessment, what he does is he starts calling his boss's creditors in and he starts giving them a discount. The first one gets a 50% discount. Instead of 900 gallons of oil, you only owe 450. The second one, instead of 1,000 bushels, you get a 20% discount and you now get, you have to make 800. Now, I can only imagine what happens as the creditors are brought in and suddenly their bill is cut in half. Obviously, they are very grateful. And then the manager who kind of looks at them and says, you know, he said, I kind of, I went to the boss and I said, you're a good customer and I went to bat for you. You know, and one hand washes the other. And so someday, maybe when I need help, you'll be there for me. Like tomorrow. Because I need a job. So he's acting, the word here is shrewdly. Now what the surprise is, is the master commends him. This woman in Santa Clara County that stole $200,000, they sent that to the district attorney. Nobody commended her for doing that. As a matter of fact, commentators look at this and go, don't understand. See, I think there's uh, Jesus is doing that little joke in here because what he does is he's saying something that people didn't expect. And that's, that's always a good joke. For example, spring has sprung, fall has fell. Summer is here and it's hotter than usual. Now, you might have thought I was going to say something else. You might have thought when Jesus got to the end of this, he would have talked about how people are corrupt, how they steal money, and that they will be condemned. Instead, they're commended. Now, if Jesus is going to commend embezzlement, that could change all the Bible study programs in this church. Tomorrow night's women's Bible study is about shoplifting. We're going to start small and work our way up. When I worked with Pastor Bruce in the, in the prison camp, I had a guy who was stealing chainsaws from Sears until he got caught. So that's our goal. And at the end of the Bible study year, the one who has stolen the most will get the award and we'll even do it here in worship. Our youth group, we're going to deal with Grand Theft Auto. Not the game, real life. And if you're going to do that, put my order in for a Ford 250 XLT so I want to be first on the list. In the men's group, well, you can come to Hayward and we're going to practice bank robbery because in Alameda County, we still have to wear a mask in the bank, so we're halfway there. <laughs> and I know what you're sitting here saying going, I don't know if I'd go to a church like that. Shoplifting, grand theft auto, bank robbery, that doesn't sound right. But then... Why in the world is Jesus commending embezzlement? And then if that's not bad enough, you get to verse 8, and then Jesus follows that with the, he commended, and it says the people of this world are more shrewd than the children of the light. Non-Christians are smarter than Christians. Now, 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 when you read that, suddenly you can become really confused. 
So I could ask you right now to turn to the person next to you and explain that. How does he commend embezzlement? And what does he mean that non-Christians are smarter than Christians? The answer is, I believe, Jesus isn't commending embezzlement. But what he is doing is he is commending the manager for a plan for actions in order to achieve his goal. His goal is to get a job. His goal is to be financially secure. And so what he does is he comes up with a plan. And as Jesus looks at society at large, he looks at them and says, when people in this world want to accomplish something, they plan it out and they work hard. If they're going to start a new business, they come up with a business plan. And they work 12, 18 hours a day. They do everything they can in order to make it happen. They set plans. They set goals. There are people, as you know, that are working full-time, it seems, to scam us. We get the phone call saying, this is the IRS. Somebody had to sit down and think that through. And they already have a script they're working from. We get the emails that there's $2 million waiting in Africa to be transferred to my bank account. Somebody is trying to do something in a very shrewd way to accomplish their goals, and their goal is to get my money. They're very shrewd out there. They think, they talk, they strategize. If you work for a business, you may have a meeting saying, okay, how can we get greater market share? How can we expand the company? How can we do things better? And there's planning and there's work. And then Jesus said, that's the world. On the other side, we have Christians. And under the theme of lost people matter to God, he says, Christians don't do the same thing. Matter of fact, oftentimes when Christians think about lost people, they just sort of leave that to God. That's his responsibility to deal with. One of the things, after being a pastor for all of these years, I've discovered is that when people do things wrong, they often feel guilty. But the, the thing that people feel in, in the church, as I've experienced, they feel guilty about, they'll say, you know, I should pray more. And they feel guilty about that. But the other one is, I should talk about Jesus more to my unchurched friends. I should be better at evangelism. And they feel guilty that they aren't very good at it. But then at the same time, my experience is I can set up classes and I can talk about seminars and I can hand out books and nobody attends. So I feel guilty that I'm not doing it, but I'm not doing anything about it. And Jesus said, non-Christians are shrewder than Christians. The people who are trying to scam us, they're trying to refine their pitch to get our money and Christians who have the best message of all in all the world have simply learned how to be quiet. 
And then we mix our theology in there and we say, well, you know, if God wants to save somebody, he'll save them because that salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit, not mine. And so we just kind of toss it on God and we say, God, I have a next door neighbor who doesn't know you. Sick him. Get him. Do something. And God said, I put you next door. And we say, back to you, God. You do something. Recently, I was talking to a woman who has been a Christian for decades. And she lived in a neighborhood where her neighbor three doors down had been there for 40 years. And uh, she was sharing with me that her neighbor now was dying of cancer. And I knew her neighbor, and I knew her neighbor had no exposure to the church, no interest in God. So I said to the woman, have you talked to your neighbor about Jesus? And she suddenly gave me that startled blank look like, I, I, never, I never thought of that. And Jesus said, the people of this world are shrewder than the people of the light. Now, Jesus goes on and he challenges us. You know, there's something that we believe, and that statement is, when we die, we can't take it with us. So there's all kinds of little phrases, like, I never saw a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Or, I remember the story of a, a man who went down to the local Goodwill, and there were all of these suits on the rack, and he found one that was his size. And when he went to the counter, he said, where'd all these suits came from, come from? And the woman said, well, the local funeral home had them, that they were using them for, you know, people that didn't have suits. And for some reason, they got rid of their unused ones. So he bought a suit, he got it home and discovered that the pants and the suit jacket had no pockets. Who needs pockets when you're in a casket? We have questions like, when he dies, how much will Bill Gates leave behind? And the answer is, all of it. Elon Musk, all of it. So we say we can't take it with us. And I want to tell you today, that's not true. We can take it with us. Now, if you and I go to a foreign country, one of the things we do when we get off the plane at one of those little kiosks or a bank is that we convert our dollars into the currency of the country. So you go to China, you have yuan or euros or pesos, you convert your dollars into different currency. What Jesus is saying as you read this parable is, he says, I want you to convert your money into people. Because people can go to heaven. Now, verse 9. Take your worldly wealth, your money, your possessions, your time, and make friends with it. And when it is gone, they will welcome you into heaven. So we take our money, 
convert it into people. And when we die, those people will be welcoming us into heaven. My, I'm here because of what you did. You see, unlike cash and possessions that will be left behind, people last forever. So what Jesus says then is, I want you to be as intentional as that shrewd manager was. He sat down, he did a full assessment, and he threw everything he had in order to find a job the next day. I want you to take everything you have, and I want you to start thinking about how you can reach the people around you and how you can reach the people in this world with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus goes on and talks about money. He says, you, you realize you and I are stewards. We are managers of the money that God has given us. And it's not that if you and I just give 10%, like a tithe to God, then we can deal with the rest. What happens, Jesus said, is God is Lord. He's to be in charge of all of your money, 100% of it. I one time worked with a guy from the Barnabas Foundation, and, and he took me out for lunch, and what struck me was he opened his wallet, and he had duct tape on the inside, and it said, God's money. Every time he opened his wallet, it was a reminder. I have one of those programs on my computer that helps me deal with balancing my checkbook, and I'll give you a hint. My password is God's money. Now, if you ever break into my house, you can get into my computer. Everything we have is God's. All of our life, all of our abilities, talents, experiences are God's. All of our possessions down to the last penny that's underneath the dresser is God's. And you and I are called to manage that. And Jesus said the problem sometimes is that people fall in love with the money and they begin to get their value and worth of how much they're worth. Instead of seeing it for the glory of God, we find our hope and peace in our bank account. And Jesus says, what I want you to do is I want you to turn your money into people. This morning we took an offering for world relief for the people in Afghanistan. That's turning money into people. Now, let's kind of pull some things together as we kind of summarize all of this. I want you to think for a moment about the people in your life that don't know God. I mean, the people in your life that don't know about Jesus or they don't believe in him. They could be your family members. I grew up in a family where my mother came to Christ when she was 16 years old. And her whole side of the family was not only not Christian, they were anti-Christian. I had my grandfather swear at me one time because he thought I was going to pray at his dinner table. I know what it's like to have unbelievers in your immediate family. For some of us, it may be a spouse. Some of us, it may be our children. Maybe expanding it out, our next door neighbors or the people that we work with. Who in your life doesn't know about Jesus? Now, the next question is, what is your plan? 
That's what the manager was commended for. He had a plan. I've got a problem. What's the plan? What's your plan? One of the things I think we make a mistake of is when I say, let's do evangelism, immediately we find ourselves sort of like Jehovah's Witnesses standing on doors, pushing doorbells, and we don't feel comfortable doing that. And maybe what we need to do is just move ourselves over 10 degrees and start talking about our faith experience or talking about church. When you go to work this week and somebody says, I don't think God ever thinks about me, you say, hey, God thinks about you four times an hour. Put your hand on your head. You got hair? He's thinking about you. Where'd you hear that? Well, I went to church on Sunday. I didn't know you went to church. You see, we begin to develop out a plan. Another thing that we start doing is we pray for these people. We pray that God will make their hearts ready because it is only God who can change a person's heart. A few years ago, I had a woman in my church whose husband was not a believer, and she came to me and she said, either you make my husband a Christian or I'm leaving the church. I looked at her and I said, I'm often mistaken for the Holy Spirit, but I can't do that. But by the grace of God, I went to share the faith with her husband. He committed his life to Christ. And because his health was so bad, I baptized him at his kitchen table. You see, we've got to pray. Now, the next thing we have to figure out is, what are we going to say? When the manager brought the, client, the customers in, he knew exactly what he was going to say. And the question is, if somebody turned to you this week and said, you go to church, right? And you go, yeah. You say, what do you believe? Or what would it take to become a Christian? What would you say? The Bible says, be ready in season and out. I mentioned that when I finished high school, I went to Ogden, Utah, and the pastor, he picked us up at the airport, took us to the church, gave us a bunch of tracks, and sent us out into the neighborhood and said, go share the gospel. We were terrified. I went with Tom. We got to the door, rang the doorbell, and the woman said, can, yeah, can I help you? And he said, uh, yeah, we're here to talk about, you know, Jesus. And she said, what about him? And he tried to explain to her the doctrine of predestination. That is not an effective beginning point. But we went back to the church that afternoon, and we were willing to learn, how do I share my faith in a meaningful way? You see, Luke 15 says, lost people matter to God. Luke 16 says, and lost people should matter to us. And the thing that God has done is he invites us into the process of evangelism. He invites us in the process of calling people to faith. Do you realize that Jesus is the one person in the Bible that talks the most about hell, but he never threatens people with hell? What he does instead, he says, if you follow me, you will finally have life to the full. I'm the living water. I'm the living bread. I'm the gate that the sheep went through. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what he does is he partners with us 
I mean, think of all those passages in the Bible. How can people believe if they haven't heard? I will make you fishers of people, Jesus said. Go into all the world, make disciples. Or probably Jesus' line, the harvest is ripe and it's ready to be picked. But where are the workers? We are. We are. And what I'd like to do today is challenge you to be God's person right where he put you. I'd like to end this message with kind of a personal story. I, I told you growing up that half of my family were non-Christians. My grandfather was anti-Christian. And uh, beginning at about 10 years of age, I began praying for my grandfather. Ultimately, he gave his life to Jesus Christ when he turned 70 years old. He was living in sort of a low-income apartment building, and one day a Christian reform minister came over and sat across the table, and they were playing checkers together. A relationship developed, and ultimately my grandfather became a Christian. My grandmother did too. My aunt did too. But the one holdout was my Uncle Dwayne. And I have to confess to you that I really wasn't thrilled with Uncle Dwayne. He was the kind of guy when I was growing up, he always made fun of me. You know, my shoes were too big or my hair was too messy or the wrong clothes. He was always kind of a know-it-all. And when I graduated from seminary and moved away, I sort of severed that relationship. Well, about a year ago, I got a phone call from my family members and said, you know, Uncle Dwayne has just been diagnosed with lung cancer and he was given a month to live. And I had to sit back and say, you know, that relationship's been cold for 35, 40 years. But in one of those little God moments, I decided to write him a letter. So I took my worldly wealth of 55 cent stamp and sent my uncle a two-page letter. I shared some of the good memories I could remember about him. And then I simply talked to him about Jesus and what it meant to give your life to Jesus. And I sort of laid it all out in those two pages. And I didn't hear. A few weeks later, my uncle Dwayne died. And the night before his funeral, there was a showing at the funeral home. And that night, I got a picture on my email of Uncle Dwayne lying in the casket. And right by his head was my letter. You could see the envelope. I addressed it to him. And my family members asked, why, why is that envelope there? And the answer from my cousin, Dwayne's daughter, was that that letter so impacted his life, he wanted to be buried with it. Now, the story is not about what a great letter I wrote, but the story is about how God often uses what little we offer to accomplish his purpose. Uncle Dwayne 
was going to be meeting me when I get to heaven. That was the best 55 cents I ever spent in my life. And God will do the same for you. We just simply need to open up and share the hope we have. And God will bless it. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, as we've gone through this message, we all think about people in our lives that don't know you. And, and we pray that your spirit will run ahead, that you will soften their hearts, that you will bring them to a point and use whatever it takes to enable them to come to faith in you. And Father, we as your church today offer ourselves to you. And we pray that you will use us to bring the message. Father, help us to be your witnesses. Help us to speak. Help us to love. Help us to change people's lives as your spirit works in them. And Lord, we are grateful for the hope that we have. Enable us to share it. So Jesus, keep working in us. Make us shrewder. Make us people that plan and hope and work. And then you do your work. And so Lord, may your message continue. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.